Please join me in Acts chapter 2. And as you're looking there, let me ask you, do you know the name Ty Cobb? Tyrus Cobb. Uh, Ty Cobb was a Northeast Georgia uh, boy who went on and did very well in Major League Baseball. In fact, some would argue, and a good argument could be made, that he was actually the best baseball player ever to play. There might be a couple that might rival him, but he's in, in, in the at least uh, the top two or three that have ever played. He has records for the highest batting average over a career. 24 years he played Major League Baseball, primarily for the Detroit Tigers. And when he finished, he had a batting average of 367, which is just marvelous. He had the highest batting average of an entire season at 420, which has never been matched. He had 23 years batting over 300. He also stole home plate more than any other player in baseball history, having done it 50 times, and the last time he was at least 40 years old. Uh, he stole home plate the most times in one inning. Now, I couldn't believe this, but he stole home plate four times in one inning. I don't know how you do that. And the item that made him really one of the wealthiest men in America is that he was one of the early investors in Coca-Cola. That's what he was, very early on. And so he built a hospital uh, uh, for the city of Royston many years ago, by the way, that uh, St. Mary's has just purchased and taken over. Wouldn't you have loved it when you were younger if you could have had an infusion of Ty Cobb's spirit and skill in you when you were playing ball? You say, I didn't play ball in school. Well, you would have if you had had an infusion of Ty Cobb's spirit and skill. Well, you can't have that because Ty Cobb is not transferring his spirit or skill to anyone, but Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ transfers his skill and his spirit to those who know him and walk with him, and he does this by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're learning over the next couple of Sundays in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 verse 39, uh, Peter explains this. He said, for the promise, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is to you and to your children and to all who are, are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Beloved, let us never forget that to serve and to live as the people and as the church God wants us to be, we need an infusion and transfer of the Holy Spirit into our lives and ministries and service. In this day, there is nothing more important than that, and we must not forget that. And the reason I say that is that we oftentimes are tempted to do exactly that, and that is to forget the desperate need we have for the skill and the power of the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of a father who was rather forgetful that purchased a new car. And as he was driving home, he just had this sense, once again, that he had forgotten something and left something at the dealership. And so he carefully looked in his satchel, which you should never do when you're driving home a new car. And he looked in that and couldn't find what he had forgotten. And he felt for uh, his wallet, and he hadn't forgotten that. He arrived home, and his son met him in the driveway. And his son said, Dad, where's Mom? He had forgotten mom at the dealership. Ladies and gentlemen, we are oftentimes tempted to forget very, very important things. 
And this is the key to an effective church and an effective life together. In our walk with Jesus Christ personally and in our service together corporately, we must never forget that the greatest and most desperate and urgent need of the hour for the people of God is to have an infusion and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And Luke records this in Acts chapter 2, how this really set the pattern for the early church. And he does this in all of chapter 2. There is in chapter 2 an experience, an explanation, and an explosion that takes place here. First, the experience in verses 1 through 12. They are celebrating the Feast of Pentecost 50 days after the Passover when Jesus was crucified. This festival was an Old Testament festival that God had commanded and that they had observed for centuries. And they would do this in order to celebrate the harvest that would come in, which was a token of a great harvest that would come later in the kingdom of God. And in verses 1 and 2, they hear a sound. They're in the upper room praying together as Jesus commanded and had been since Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And they hear a sound of a rushing wind. Now, there was no rushing wind. There was only the sound of a rushing wind, and it gathered everyone's attention. And then there was a sight. There was fire that appeared as languages or tongues upon each one of them that was there. In verse number 3, and then they began to speak in other languages they had never learned. It was a miraculous event according to verse 4, and I want you to pick up the story with me there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages. And why we uh, say languages will become apparent later. As the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. That's what they heard. And then the languages are outlined in verse 9. It says in verse 8, How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Languages, tongues, dialects are all synonymous terms in the actual languages here are outlined. Each of the languages they miraculously spoke without attending language school had vocabulary and grammar and syntax, and this is what the Bible defines as the biblical gift of tongues. It is a miraculous gift where those who have it are able to speak in a language they had not learned prior. It wouldn't require language school. It wouldn't require any kind of discipline. It was a miraculous ability in the early church that they had to speak. It is not unintelligible. It is not something separate from human language. In fact, I'm speaking in a tongue now. It's called the English tongue. I have a very limited and broken Spanish tongue skills. I can get along just fine in a Mexican restaurant, but I do not know enough to cross the border and keep myself out of trouble. You see, and some of you are very similar with that as well. You've got language abilities, but you'd probably, you probably don't have the gift of tongues because you had to go through language school or you had to learn somehow, some way, that particular language. The gift of tongues was a, an ability to speak a foreign language they had never learned and to speak it on the spot. And what a remarkable thing that took place here 
in the text. Well, as a result, many came to Christ. So what we find here is the significance. The significance is, is that they had these enormous language barriers before them with all these nations gathered there, and God overcame them with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the evangelism and the missionary barriers before them was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the experience. Well, they asked, what does this mean? In verse 12, and some mocked them, saying, they're full of new wine. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and these jokers are drunk, is what they accused them and mocked them. And some of them, some of their ancestors are with us today in their criticisms and mockery and ridicule of the Christian church. Well, Peter begins to explain in verse 14. He stands up and lifts his voice before this hostile crowd that 50 days earlier had cried out for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, before the Holy Spirit, Peter wilted before a Jewish lash and de denied the Lord three times. Before an enormous crowd full of bloodthirsty, murderous, mocking, ridiculing people, people he preaches the gospel and quotes from Joel, uh, Joel chapter 2, and David from Psalms 16. And Peter then explains what's going on from Joel's prophecy in verse 14 down to verse number 21 is what he does. The summary of it is found in verse 17. He says, Joel explains what would happen on this day. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. In other words, when the last days began, the Holy Spirit would come, Joel said. Beloved, we have been in the last days since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's what took place. That began the apocalyptic program of God. And it will not finish and complete until Jesus returns, to which Peter refers in verses 19 and 20. It's what took place. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out, not sprinkled, not merely uh, dashed about, but poured out greatly upon all those who knew the Lord. And so Peter explains this is entirely biblical, and I'm justifying this not by the experience. I'm justifying this by the Word of God from Joel chapter 2. And then he explains from David why the Holy Spirit was poured out at this time. He says in Psalm 16, God promised to raise Jesus from the dead. In verse number 27, he summarizes David where he said, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, or the place of the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter saw in this, by the inspiration of the Spirit, a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ, that Christ's body would not be in the grave long enough to experience deterioration or decomposition. And that is precisely what happened. Well, he goes on and says, The Holy Spirit's been poured out in this time because Jesus is raised from the dead. And look what happened in verse 33. There's something that took place when Jesus ascended to heaven and was coronated at the right hand of God that many overlook and are really un unfamiliar with. Verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is, Jesus received the promise of the Father, He, Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear. So the Father made a transfer in the kingdom of God. The prosecuting attorney went in service of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the King of Kings, sent His prosecuting attorney to the earth, to the world, and poured Him out upon 
all believing flesh. That's the marvelous thing that happened. Now, the reason that the Holy Spirit is here is that Jesus is raised, exalted, and coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the sign of that is that the Holy Spirit came. If Jesus Christ was not favorably received up into heaven, coronated and enthroned at the right hand of the Father, we would know nothing of the Holy Spirit. And the sign that Jesus Christ is favorably received coronated, reigning in session today upon His throne, is that the Holy Spirit has come and He abides with us forever. That's what took place. And Peter uses David's prophecy to prove that point. So, because of the Spirit's power in His coming, Peter was able to say just the right words when the church was ridiculed. And that's a need in our day. Then there's an explosion that takes place. Oh, a remarkable thing. Dr. Fish used to tell us in class years ago that the church grows sometimes by addition. They struggle and they strain through the grunt work of daily ministry. So they grow by addition. Sometimes they grow by multiplication. But then sometimes churches grow by explosion. And that's what took place on this first day of the church's life on the day of Pentecost. They explode in two areas, their conversions. They explode in conversions, verse 37 to 41. They cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so 3,000 that day make a commitment. It says in verse number 40, with many other words, justification for long sermons, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Beloved, they spent 10 days in prayer, preached a few minutes and had 3,000 saved. And we wonder why it is when we only spend 10 minutes in prayer and talk for days, only a handful come to Christ or none at all. They had their priorities right and sought the Lord over it. So there's an explosion in conversions. Then there's an explosion in the church. A church is formed from verse 42 down to verse 47. In verse 42 to 45, we find their functions. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which became the New Testament, Genesis uh, on through Revelation, and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And, and then they begin to give. They've got uh, pilgrims from all over the earth, they had just enough resources for the trip there, a week there, and a trip back home. But they stay and they linger for months afterwards, and so they have to begin to share their resources with one another. They go so far in Acts chapter 4 and 5 to sell their property in order to fund the needs of the fledgling church, which some estimate, after a few years, got up to 25,000 there in Jerusalem in attendance. And so those are their functions, verse 42 to 45. Then they have favor with the people. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food in gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then there happened to be more followers. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So there's an explosion of conversions, an explosion in the church. Because of the Holy Spirit's power, they established a model church which really has become in nearly all the church growth literature written now for all these centuries, the model church. Anytime a church is exalted in preaching or teaching for the people of God, this church happens to be. And by the way, I would say to you, you could draw a line from any passage in the book of Acts 
to this passage from verse 40 to 47 and find a relationship. This is an excellent summary of everything that took place in the book of Acts, and it's a great passage to memorize. Well, here's the point I want to make. Effective Christian living and church ministry necessitate an intervention of the Holy Spirit. The task we have to live for Jesus, the task we have to serve and minister in the name of Christ, is too difficult and too large for business as usual. Human flesh will never accomplish the will of God to the glory of Jesus Christ. We must have the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. And beloved, Jesus Christ in His resurrection has achieved it for everyone who trusts Christ as Savior and Lord. In other words, you don't have to be good enough to receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit the same way you receive forgiveness, and that is by grace. Because it's not achieved. It is not achieved by human effort. It's not achieved by human ingenuity. It's not achieved by collective wisdom. It's not achieved by human merit. It is achieved by the cross, the resurrection, coronation, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And church, I've got a very good news for you. Jesus is on the throne, and He's not leaving lordship ever. So you have hope in the Holy Spirit. You can have His power. You do not have to fail. So you can meet every temptation with the power of God. You can meet every service opportunity in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can meet every conflict in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can meet every distress, every heartbreak, every disappointment in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can meet every need in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can meet every culture, every obstacle, every hindrance to the name of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And He is victorious because Christ is on His throne. Now how may I then access the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, there are several things that surface from Acts chapter 1 and 2 that I think will be very, very helpful to us. First, obey. Obey. Acts chapter 2 was preceded by a command of Jesus in Acts 1 verse 4. And it might be what may qualify as one of the most confusing commandments in the entire book of Acts. It, it really, to some, may not make entire good sense. In fact, I've struggled with the command some myself. But Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus said, Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, wait a minute. The disciples have had three years of instruction that has never been surpassed. Could anyone teach better than Jesus? Well, they've had it. Then an additional 40 days of teaching following His resurrection. Jesus Christ is crucified and He is risen. He is alive and they have one another. Apparently they have forgiven each other. Peter for his denial of Christ. Uh, the others for abandoning the Lord. And they have forgiven each other enough to gather in a prayer meeting where there's no wrath or dissension in verse number 14 of Acts chapter 1. They have all of this and they're ready to be set loose upon the world and Jesus says, wait. How many of you enjoy the command frequently through the Bible that says, wait upon the Lord? I don't know of anyone that's ever been happy about any command to wait on anything. And yet the Lord gives this command, which could be profoundly confusing, misunderstood, and may not make sense at all. But they waited. In fact, I think that they had internalized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. I believe they had internalized this and the Holy Spirit came upon them in that prayer meeting. Jesus told them to wait in, in that upper room. Beloved, make no mistake about it. The Holy Spirit has an affinity for the obedient Christian. He gives His power to Christians who have a zeal and a heart for obedience. And so when we lose His power, it oftentimes is because of disobedience. If you have found yourself without the power of the Holy Spirit, you may want to go through the exercise in prayer of contemplating perhaps where in the past God directed you to do something by His Word or Spirit, and you said no. At that moment, He cuts off the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you don't lose your salvation. But you sure do lose some joy. You lose an awful lot of joy. And you lose your power. And you start succumbing to temptation more often. You start making more unwise decisions. You begin to drift from God and worship is not the thrill to Jesus or to you that it once was. You have no interest in witnessing to other people. You have no burden. In other words, you begin to drift from God in disobedience. It may be that God said, submit to authority, the authority in your life. It, and you said no. It could be God said, start tithing and giving, and you said no. It could be God said, witness to that stranger and do it now, and you said no. It could be God said, forgive or restore what you've taken. Come clean. And you said no. And at that moment you said no. God said, no more power then. You'll not have it. I'm going to get your attention and increasingly make you miserable until you repent and do what I said. May I say to you, if God commanded you to do it in the past and you didn't do it, He still wants you to do it. And it's time to move on with Him. The Holy Spirit has an affinity for the obedient heart, mind, and life. But the Holy Spirit is grossed out by disobedience to God. So if obedience is the way to power and disobedience is the way to powerlessness, repentance is the way to restore God's power in your life. But there's a second thing. Not only obey, but pray. Alan Redpath was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for many years and really one of the better Bible expositors and devotional writers. But he got terribly busy with his ministry in life and really worked himself into exhaustion and some say a stroke. And he was in the hospital, laid up in the hospital. And he thought through and prayed through and, and graciously he, he recovered. But while he was on his back in that hospital bed, the Lord spoke to his heart and began to unfold to him that he was doing his work and service in the power of the flesh instead of the power of the Spirit. And he noticed that his devotional life had drifted. And he concluded that he would never go about ministry again without adequate prayer for everything he did. In fact, he wrote and then reported to Ron Dunn some counsel about ministry and service and prayer. He said, never take on more than you can cover in believing prayer. Never do more in service than what 
you can bathe in prayer. Everything is to be bathed in prayer. Every Sunday school lesson, every quiet time, every devotion, every worship service, every witnessing opportunity, everything in life, every attempt to reconcile, every attempt to forgive must be bathed and covered completely in adequate prayer. And you may be wondering, where did the power of the Holy Spirit go in my life? And I would then ask, are you sure that you're covering your service in the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you kept your commitment to pray 714, to pray at 714 every day for the Act 22 project, for revival, the future of our church, and for lost people? Are you in a prayer meeting? I worry about those who are not. There is then a connection between prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 14, they were all together in one accord in the upper room, praying and seeking God. Chapter 2, verse 42, though they had an explosion of the power of the Holy Spirit, they still continued steadfastly in prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 21, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit has an affinity not only for the obedient Christian, the Holy Spirit has an affinity for the praying Christian who is desperate and hungry for prayer and the power of God in prayer. In other words, He gives His best power and favors to those who give their best energies to prayer. And so, the truth is, is that you can do something about everything that comes across your way. You can pray, and God will act, because prayer can do whatever God can do. And so we give our energies to prayer. So we obey, we pray, but there's a third thing, and that is risk. Fifty days before this day, they had crucified the Lord in this same city with some of the same crowd. And everything that was up was down, and everything that should have been down was up on that horrible, horrible demonic day. Peter was so intimidated by it all. And yet 50 days later, the Holy Spirit was now in his life and he was as bold as a lion. And there was no shutting him down at all. Prison couldn't do it. Rulers couldn't do it. Councils couldn't do it. And in chapter 2, verse 14, when they mocked the church, he stood. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. They aren't drunk. It's just the third hour of the day. This is what Joel said. And he quoted from the second chapter of Joel, passages that are unfamiliar to most Christian people, and he preached the word. He is in a difficult setting with a murderous crowd and with people who are mocking the church in the name of Christ. But the Holy Spirit came through because he was taking a great risk. You know, the Holy Spirit has an affinity for those who stretch themselves for God and take a risk to the extent that if he doesn't come through, they'll fail. The reason some people don't have the power of the Holy Spirit is they don't need it. They aren't doing anything that requires the power of God. They're living within the human flesh. They're living within their own natural capabilities, with their own wisdom. They're not stretching. They're not reaching. They're not risking. They're not putting themselves out there for God in risk and obeying the risky commands of God. Those who play it safe will never know the power 
of the Holy Spirit. They don't need it. But the Holy Spirit has an affinity for those whose obedience to the risky commands of God make His power necessary, and He comes through every time. Power belongs to those whose obedience necessitates power. And in this text, it's very clear. The circumstance and the act that Peter engaged in that required the power of the Spirit. He is preaching the gospel to a very hostile crowd. You want the power of the Holy Spirit? You come up with a plan to win others to Jesus Christ and implement it, and the Holy Spirit will come through. He'll not embarrass the name of Christ. He will not, he will not undermine the glorious name of Almighty God. He'll come through for the sake of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit will act. But there's a fourth thing to do, and that is unite. Unite. Unite with the people of God. Unite in covenant relationship with a local church. You know, I love local churches for many reasons, one of which they remind me of barbecue restaurants. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world does a church remind you of a barbecue restaurant? I'll tell you, I go into select barbecue restaurants. I don't go into just any barbecue joint. Oh, no. I go into the kind where I walk in, and when I walk out a few hours later, I've got to smell like barbecue. That's the kind of barbecue restaurant I appreciate, where the whole atmosphere is permeated with barbecue, with the smell of it. Oh, many times I've come home and my wife has asked me, okay, which barbecue restaurant did you eat at today at lunch? It's all over your clothes. It's in your hair. What's left? It's in your nostrils, it's in your lungs, it's in your shoes, it's everywhere. And those who attended with you and went with you, they talk about it. It's all over. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is similar. The Holy Spirit permeates the place. Jesus said, if, hey, he, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf where we, all, where we all can get them. He said, if two or three are gathered in my name, let me ask you, are you here in the name of Christ? Would you lift your hand, please? Well, that qualifies. As two or three, there I am in the midst of them, and He would be present with us by His Spirit, is what the Scripture teaches. We need a dynamic, growing relationship with a local church because that is where we find the power of the Holy Spirit. Now look with me in verse number 42. It says, They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. It is a plural, third-person pronoun. And then in verse number 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Again, the plural. Verse 46, <coughs> so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They were together. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, promises the power of the Holy Spirit. If you can, quote it with me. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, you may not have noticed, but in that one verse, the word you is used three times. And each of the three times it's used in that text, it is used in the second person plural. Of course, you was a second person word, but it is always used in the plural. It's never used in the singular in that verse. Three times emphatically it appears in the plural. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus not only imagined us having the power of the Holy Spirit individually, 
He imagined us having the power of the Holy Spirit collectively when we are together, and that is why it worries me when those seeking to follow Christ are not dynamically, faithfully growing in their walk with a local church and united with one. Now, I need to make sure you understand. I don't mean mere church attendance. I don't mean mere church attenders. I mean, they're church attenders that know as much about the power of the Holy Spirit as they do 19th century Russian czars. They're like the crowd in Acts chapter 19 who'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has an affinity for those who place themselves intentionally in an environment where the Holy Spirit is honored and present, and that is collectively with the people of God. And that is why a growing covenant relationship with a local church is so necessary and powerful. Every day you resist becoming part of a local church by baptism, statement, transfer of a letter, all beginning with conversion, is another day you delay the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to the extent God wants to work with you. Becoming a covenant part of a local church is not merely a human idea. It is something taught in the Word of God. And God wants to give power, but He'll never do so to the disobedient. Alan Redpath also said, If the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from today's church, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would notice. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would notice the difference. I think it makes a good point here. We must be dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, given everything to Him and never take a step without intentionally seeking the power of the Holy Spirit by obeying and praying and risking and uniting with the people of God. Again, in Acts chapter 19, Paul was with a group that had followed John the Baptist. And apparently they did so and transferred to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. Paul got to talking with them, and about all they could do is talk about John the Baptist. There's some like that. They're religious, and they may speak and talk about religious things, but they never get to Jesus. It's always about a preacher or some Christian celebrity or someone else, and they never quite get to Jesus Christ. And Paul noticed this about these Ephesian followers of John the Baptist, and so he asked them the question, um, have, you, have you heard of the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, well, we don't even know, didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, tell me about your baptism. He said it was John's baptism, and it became clear. They knew the message of John the Baptist, but apparently had escaped Israel before they heard the message of Christ. And so he won them to the Lord and baptized them in the name of Christ. There are some that are very much similar to those in Acts chapter 19. They know the names of Christian servants and they know the names of Christian churches and are thoroughly conversant and comfortable talking and speaking in that language, but they've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Or if they have, he's a, he's a mystery. He's a fog. He's a force. He's not the God and personal friend that Jesus Christ has declared him to be. That's oftentimes how it happens. And, and to 
experience that kind of ignorance about the Holy Spirit is much like the father standing in the home saying, who's that little boy? Mama says, it's your youngest son. You'd have to wonder just exactly if that man's part of the family. How stunning to be that ignorant of someone that's actually in the family. I will say to you, if you know Christ as Savior, you know the Holy Spirit. Ignorance of the Holy Spirit may be a clue that you need to go beyond religion and you really need to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Are you part of the family? Your walk with the Holy Spirit and knowledge Him is very telling. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter would preach, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ. Today, it's very important to become horrified and grossed out by ignorance of the Holy Spirit. To turn from that, to admit it, to choke it down and admit it and turn to light in Jesus Christ. And that light is truth of the Holy Spirit. Cast yourself in faith upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, can you trust Jesus and His mercy? Well, He's the one that gives the Holy Spirit. Of course you can. And He's the one that died and rose again to secure that blessing for all of those who will call on Jesus Christ. Of all the people on the earth and in heaven, Jesus Christ is the most trustworthy and He surpasses them all. You can trust the crucified and risen Savior today. And He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit if you'll turn to Him and embrace the Lord Jesus. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want us to pray about this. Father, we cry out today, blessed, blessed be your name for giving the Holy Spirit. By him, you stand with us and you comfort us in sorrow and you guide us. In him was our first encounter with you by conviction of sin. And I want to pray today, oh God, that friends would obey the Holy Spirit's promptings. Lord, would you make it very clear and powerful to those friends who do not know the Lord that they need to obey his prompting and repent and believe the gospel and take Jesus. Help them to seek help with that today. For others that may have things unconfessed in their lives, disobediences, prayerlessness, a worship of comfort zones, a distant from local church, would you help them to yield and surrender to Jesus Christ that they may have the power of the Holy Spirit? And dear God, make us disciplined to seek the power of the Spirit every time we seek to serve you. And may we be known as a place where the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in life and in church. As you keep on talking to God, let me give you a little instruction now. Our staff is going to be here at the front, and we're going to invite you to come and turn to the Lord. You become convinced today that you're guilty before God, but you trust Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, that that was sufficient to cancel all your sins.
ready now to come follow Jesus and to make Him Master, Savior, Lord of your life. We're going to sing, and I want you to step out from where you are and meet a staff member here in front and share with that staff member your need or your decision as hundreds and thousands for more than half a century have done that very thing. For Christ's sake, would you come? Don't delay. You've delayed long enough, but you come now. Tim, would you lead us? Let's sing together. You come.